theologian and reformer Martin Luther opposed the Catholic Church on their teaching on indulgences. An indulgence was a, a certificate of merit that could be purchased that could reduce your sins or to reduce the sins of someone you loved and so have a, right, a more right standing before God. But Luther claimed that salvation doesn't come from any indulgence we can buy or any work that we can do. But salvation has been secured for us through the work of Christ alone. The Catholic Church in the 16th century, and still does today, preaches a gospel that requires the individual to add to their salvation by doing good works. For example, praying to Mary and the saints, the need to go to confession, partaking in all the sacraments. This is what the Catholic Church teaches, that you need to do some sort of work to add to your salvation. The Apostle Paul also dealt with this in his own time. From those that claim to be super apostles, those we read about in 2 Corinthians, or the circumcision party, which Paul opposed in his letter to the Galatians. Uh, there's always been individuals, parties, who have tried to distort the teachings of the gospel, who have tried to add to the gospel. And when you add to the gospel, you take away from the gospel. And by taking away from the gospel, what do you do? Well, you dishonor Christ. You say that his work wasn't enough. Because the gospel has come under attack, is coming attack, and will continue to come under attack, there is the constant duty for the Christian to guard and protect God's word, to teach and warn and rebuke from God's word. And by doing these things, friends, keep the gospel pure. Uh, the main point of today's sermon is that the church must promote and defend the gospel. The church must defend and promote the gospel. And we have two points today. Our first point, the church must proclaim and make known the gospel. The church must proclaim and make known the gospel. And second, the church must defend the gospel and refute those who oppose it. The church must defend the gospel and refute those who oppose it. Please have your Bibles open as we look at Titus in Titus chapter 1. Uh, the book of Titus is known as a pastoral epistle. It is a personal letter written by Paul to Titus. Uh, the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus, even though they are personal letters written to specific individuals, they still contain timeless truths for us to learn from, to grow from. In our first five verses, Paul gives us his opening introduction. As sometimes we can glaze over these opening introductions of the New Testament writers, of Paul and the other, and the writers. But if we look closely at these first five verses, we can see the direction which Paul is taking as he writes this letter. And Paul says that his role when he went to Crete with Titus was to further the faith, 
to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to all of God's elect. To declare the knowledge of the truth. And this truth leads the elect to godliness. And upon this truth is the hope of eternal life. The message of eternal life, a promise which is secure and is given by a God who does not lie, has been revealed to us. It has been made known to us. Our friends, the preaching of the gospel is the means by which the church grows. The gospel is the proclamation of what Jesus has done, is doing, and what he will continue to do. The gospel, the truth and proclamation of God's word, is so vital to the Christian faith. And it must, in every generation, be proclaimed and made known. And this brings us to our first point. Point number one, the church must proclaim and make known the gospel. As Paul writes to, Timothy, uh, writes to Titus, he writes with clear instructions to put in order what he had left unfinished. Uh, Paul and Titus had perhaps visited Crete during Paul's third missionary journey in about the mid-50s. And five, ten years later, he is now writing to Titus to put in order what he has left unfinished. When Paul was in Crete, his task was to preach and declare the good news, to make the gospel known to a people who had not yet heard it. And now Titus' role is to uphold and defend and promote that gospel. And Paul says that the chief means in promoting the gospel is through appointing elders. Have a look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Titus was to continue to preach and declare the gospel. And this wasn't his task alone but to be done through appointing elders who would uphold, defend, and promote that gospel. At Cornerstone, we have seven elders. But what are elders? An elder is a man who has been appointed to have spiritual and pastoral oversight over the church which has called him. An elder is responsible for looking after God's household, the church. It is for this reason why Paul outlines that an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe. Uh, this doesn't mean that the elder's children need to be believers, but it requires that an elder has been instructing his children to know Jesus, has been directing his children to, uh, to know Jesus in their day-to-day -day lives. And Paul also says an elder must not be open to any charge of wild or disobedient living. The man must be blameless within his home, but also the community around him. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. If an elder can keep his own household in good order, then this is a good indicator that he can look after God's household, the church. 
Uh, Timothy Whitmer, in his book, The Shepherd Leader, describes elders as under-shepherds to the chief shepherd, Christ. And Whitmer says that the role of these under-shepherds, these elders, are to know God's sheep, to know the church, to feed God's sheep, to declare the word, to care for God's sheep, and to protect God's sheep. And the role of these under-shepherds, our elders, is ultimately to direct the church, direct the sheep to the chief shepherd, Christ. Uh, the session shared with us last Sunday the very unexpected news that our minister will be leaving Cornerstone sometime in the next three to six months to return to Perth, to be able to be closer and to help look after his aging parents. As Cornerstone looks for a new minister, who do we look for? What process is meant to guide us? What questions should we be asking our new minister? Uh, what selection criteria does he need to fill out? What does he need to do to show us that he can look after God's household? Well, Paul doesn't say, look at his accomplishments, look at his experiences. What does Paul tell us to look for? Paul tells us, look at his character. Oh, it's so countercultural, isn't it? What we look for in an elder. We aren't told to look at their education, their experience, and whether they have attained the right certificates or the right training. Uh, mind you, this is an important thing. But Paul says us, tells us that the most important thing to look for is how the gospel has made an impact on their life. How the gospel has changed them. This is why Paul says an elder must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. What Paul is saying here is that our new minister must look profoundly different to the culture around us. Those in Crete lived ungodly lives, living for themselves, living for the world. Men who indulged in alcohol, who got drunk, who were violent, and who sought to exploit others. Paul says, when we look for a new elder, when we look for a new minister, look for someone not of this world, but look for someone changed and transformed by the gospel. Find someone who loves what is good. Find someone who is upright. Find someone living a holy life. Someone who is disciplined. An elder must live out the gospel, but an elder must also be able to teach the gospel. As I said, one of the primary roles of an elder is to be an under-shepherd to Christ. And that role of that under-shepherd, that elder, is to lead the church, lead the sheep to the chief shepherd, Christ. How do we lead people to Jesus? Well, it's sharing with people what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he is continuing to do. Elders are to promote the gospel, promote God's word. 
The gospel, after all, friends, is the means in which people come to a knowledge of the saving work of what Jesus has done. It is through the gospel that Christians become mature and are equipped to make disciples. It is through the gospel that Christians are comforted and reassured when they fall on hard times. The clear proclamation of the gospel is also the chief means in refuting and opposing those who will seek to distort it. However, the proclaiming of God's word is not exclusively a role just given to elders. It is something that each, of, each Christian is responsible for. As a church, we must promote the gospel through the gifts our Lord has given us. For each of us, this will look different. But when Jesus said, go and make disciples, this command was not just for the apostles, but it was a paradigm for all of Christ's disciples. So the clear proclamation of the gospel does not rest upon our elders alone, but it is a responsibility given to the whole church. Uh, let me say this. Making disciples does not equal making converts. Making disciples is both, yes, adding to our number, making the gospel known to those who don't know it, but the gospel is also using our gifts to equip the saints, to grow them in maturity, to grow them in a better understanding of what God's word is telling us. And each of us have been gifted as a church to be able to do this. For those that they have been gifted in evangelism, they are encouraged to use that gift. For others, we have been gifted in other ways. We should be looking at our gifts that our Lord has given us and using our gifts to grow and build God's church, to make disciples. All of us have been called to make disciples. This also, this also has, we've also been called though to protect and defend the gospel. Each of us have been called to promote and protect the gospel. And this isn't an easy task. It can be very hard sometimes rebuking and correcting people. But it's something that we as a church have been called to do. And this leads us to our second point. The church must defend the gospel by refuting those who oppose it. Our Paul tells Titus, there will be many who are rebellious, those that are empty talkers and those that will deceive. And he mentions especially those within the circumcision party, those that are pretending to be part of the church. It's easy to notice false teaching when it's blatantly obvious. If someone tells you that Jesus isn't God, your Christian alarm bell rings and you know that that is an obvious false teaching. That is an obvious heresy. But the heresies that are hardest to find are those that are mixed with elements of truth. That is why Paul tells us, look out, watch especially of those of the circumcision party. The circumcision party were those you would call Jewish Christians. Those that called themselves Christians, but those that were adding to the gospel, saying that to be a Christian, you needed to still follow the Jewish law. 
observe the Jewish tradition and rites. What they were doing, the circumcision party, was they were adding to the gospel. But what happens when you add to the gospel? Well, you take away from the gospel. You take away from the work that Christ has done. What does this mean for us? Well, Paul is telling us, be careful of those churches who are distorting the gospel by adding to it. Paul tells us, refute such people. For those that add to the gospel will subtract from the gospel. Our Paul knows, Paul teaches us that the only way we are saved is through Christ alone. Not by any work we have done, but solely by Christ's work, His life, His death, and His resurrection. So Paul is warning us. He is telling us, be aware of those churches which claim that to be right with God, you need to do something more than what Jesus has done. Saying that we need to pray perhaps to Mary and the saints, or we need some sort of extra anointing of the Spirit. That we need to be able to speak in tongues to be right with God. Now, God's Word teaches us that the only way to be right with God is through what Christ has done, His work alone. Friends, to follow such people that promote a false gospel is something very dangerous. Paul tells us, rebuke and refute such people. Why? So that they may turn from these false premises and live lives that are sound in faith and sound in the gospel. Paul tells us in chapter 3 verse 10 of the book of Titus that when engaging with someone who causes division, warn them once and then twice and then have nothing more to do with them. Uh, Jesus tells us this pattern also in the gospel of Matthew in chapter 18 verses 16 and 17. Let me read for us. Our Lord Jesus says that if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen even to the church, Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Our Paul tells us that a person who refuses to listen is warped and sinful and has condemned themselves. Now, the question we have at this point is, how do we know who are those that are causing division or are teaching or presenting a false gospel? I have a look again with me at verses 12 to 14 of our passage. And Paul says, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. It's striking here how Paul describes the cretin. A liar, an evil beast, a lazy glutton. Someone who is deceptive. 
one who will actively distort the truth, one who is prone to wild living, getting drunk and being violent, one who is self-indulgent and only seeks to gratify themselves. As such a person, Paul says, is warped in mind. They think they know how to follow God, but they don't. They have no clue. They think they are living pure lives, but they aren't. They're living impure lives. And by their lives, they confess that they don't know God. Have a look at verse 15 and 16 with me. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Are their character, whether they are shaped by the gospel or not, will tell you if they belong to Christ, if they have taken hold of the gospel or not. We will also know these false teachers by what they teach, whether they are teaching that salvation comes through Christ alone, or whether they are teaching a false gospel, and they are adding to the gospel, distorting it, and dishonoring Christ. If they preach a different gospel, if they preach and say that it's something else, the gospel plus works, the gospel plus experience, the gospel plus tradition, then we know that they are denying Christ. They are denying His work and that they do not know God. Friends, as a church, we need to defend the gospel by refuting those who oppose it. And the best way to promote the gospel uh, the best way to defend the gospel is by promoting the gospel. And the only way we can promote the gospel, friends, is by declaring it. And we only can declare it if we know it. So can I encourage you all, please, familiarize yourself with what God's word is saying. Uh, Luke tells us in Acts 17 that the Bereans were more noble than those of, in Thessalonica. For when they received the word, they received it with eagerness. And more than that, they examined the scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul and Silas were saying was true. I hear on Sunday, when you hear God's word expounded, listen with your Bibles open. When you attend your growth groups during the week, do it with your Bibles open. As you meet up one-to-one -one or in small groups, do it with your Bibles open. Friends, we also need to make the reading of God's Word a regular habit. A good way of knowing God's Word is by reading it regularly. Our married couples know that they would have a difficult relationship with their spouse if they only talked to one another once a week. A healthy relationship with your spouse includes regular interaction, regular conversation. The same is with God's Word. To have a healthy understanding of what God's Word is saying, we have to read it regularly. Let me end with this. The Gospel needs to be defended. There will be many who oppose it. There will be many who will try to add to it. The Gospel has, throughout history, come under attack, and it will come under attack. So the church has a responsibility to, to promote, to defend, and refute those who oppose it.
Syncretism happens when we see that the gospel isn't good enough and that to make it more appealing, we need to add to it. But friends, the gospel is good enough. The gospel is so multifaceted and has such beauty and such depth. As a church, we need to show those around us what a treasure we have, rather than thinking that this treasure needs something more. Friends, let's show those around us the beauty of the gospel. Let's do this by promoting the gospel. Let's do this by defending the gospel. How about I pray? Our Heavenly Father, our Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Father, we pray that you would help us and equip us, your church, to, prom to promote and defend the gospel. Our Father, we think and pray especially for our elders during this time. Our Father, we pray that you would protect their marriages, protect them spiritually. Lord, help them with this important task of promoting and defending your gospel. Our Father, we pray that you would create in them a deeper and growing dependence on you. And Father, we, we thank you for the Markham family and thank you for um, their time here at Cornerstone. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would be with them as uh, you um, help them on the next part of their journey. Our Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church as we look for a new minister that you would help us to find someone who has been profoundly changed and shaped by the gospel, one who will preach your word faithfully, one who will continue to direct us to our chief shepherd, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Our Father, we pray, help us as a church corner so to grow in a deeper dependence on you. Help us, your church, to be continually shaped by your word, eager to promote your word, and bold to defend it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.